Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another Behind the Knife Grand Rounds episode. Our guest is Dr. Diana Deason, an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at UT Southwestern Medical Center. She is also the director of the UT Southwestern Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Program and site director for medical students. Dr. Deason earned her medical degree at the University of Virginia School of Medicine and completed her residency in general surgery at Duke University, as well as a pediatric surgery fellowship at Children's Health in Dallas, where she has stayed on as faculty since 2013. Welcome to Behind the Knife. All right. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Diana Deason. I'm a pediatric surgeon here at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas, and I was invited to talk today about bilious emesis in children. I think that it's important when discussing bilious emesis in children that we think of children at their various ages of development, because what will affect children at one age is very different than what will affect them later on in life. For example, Conditions that cause bilious emesis in a newborn are very different than what will cause bilious emesis in an adolescent. To start with, let's break children down into newborns or neonates, so less than four weeks of age, infants, less than one, toddlers, one to three years of age, children from three to 12, and adolescents from 12 to 18. And I think if you put childhood development in those categories, the differential diagnosis for each of those will lead us to different workup in patients with bilious emesis. So thinking about bilious emesis, in order for a patient to vomit bile, there must be a clear path from their mouth to the ampulla of vater. So there's a process disrupting intestinal motility that is distant to the ampulla of vater in order for them to have bilious emesis. So when we're thinking about newborns specifically, in order to have bilious emesis, we're not going to be concerned about, for example, tracheoesophageal fistula and esophageal atresia because we already have a patent process through our esophagus. We're not going to be worried about pyloric stenosis, for example, because the pyloric enlargement would be proximal to the ampulla of water. Now, anyone who's done a pediatric surgery rotation will be familiar with the phrase that bilious emesis is malrotation until proven otherwise. So malrotation is a process that happens during fetal development in which your intestines do not rotate normally. So normally at five weeks of gestation, your intestines are outside of the fetus. During approximately eight to nine weeks of gestation, you have rotation around the axis and the SMA vascular pedicle is the axis. And so your intestines rotate 270 degrees in a counterclockwise rotation. And then as the fetus continues to develop around 10 to 12 weeks, we have reduction of the intestines into the abdominal cavity and the duodenum enters the abdomen in the left upper quadrant, and the cecum and the colon enter and fix on the right lower quadrant. And so you have this broad mesenteric base that keeps the intestines from rotating on the vascular pedicle being the SMA. If you have variation in that rotation, then you have malrotation. The reason that this is clinically significant is that if you have malrotation, particularly if you have bilious emesis with it, we're worried about volvulus. So we're worried about the intestines rotating around the SMA and then causing ischemia to the uh, bowel supplied by the SMA, which would be from the ligament of trites to the mid-transverse colon. 
Now, the treatment for malrotation with volvulus is emergent operative intervention. And that's why if a patient has bilious emesis, we must think about malrotation and rule it out because time is bowel. So the way that we evaluate for malrotation is usually with an upper GI. In order to treat malrotation, we take a patient to the operating room after appropriate resuscitation. We detorse the bowel. We lice any LADS bands. We straighten the duodenum so that it points towards the right lower quadrant, broaden the mesentery, and then place the intestines back in the abdomen in a position of non-rotation. The small bowel goes to the right, large bowel goes to the left. Mesentery is as broad as possible. You also can choose to remove the appendix if you like. Some will say that you should keep the appendix if you have a young patient who might need an ACE procedure or might need urinary diversion, then oftentimes we will keep the appendix. But otherwise, the appendix is in an abnormal location, and oftentimes surgeons will choose to, to remove that at the time of the procedure. But there are other things that can cause bilious emesis in children besides malrotation. And it's important to consider that differential. So let's consider it based on age. So in a newborn or a neonate, differential for bilious emesis that is different than other ages. At that point, when a child's first born, we don't know whether or not their development has been appropriate. And so they may have, in addition to malrotation, they may have hernias. So they may have a diaphragmatic hernia. They might have umbilical hernias. They might have inguinal hernias that are causing a bowel obstruction. We don't know if they have a duodenal obstruction. So for example, duodenal atresia is a condition in which you have an incomplete cannulization of the duodenum. This is often associated with trisomy 21 and approximately 30% of the patients and can also importantly have associated cardiac abnormalities in 25 to 35% of those patients. And the reason that's important to know is because if you have a patient that has duodenal atresia, it's important to do a careful heart exam and get an echo in order to ensure that they don't have cardiac anomalies prior to going to the operating room. Now, depending on where that atresia is, the patient may have bilious or non-bilious emesis. It really depends on where the atresia is relative to the ampulla of otter. But about 80% of infants with duodenal atresia will actually have bilious emesis, so their obstruction will be distal to the ampulla. There are other things that can mimic duodenal atresia or appear as a duodenal obstruction, and that includes an annular pancreas. And so oftentimes when we're going to the operating room, we may have imaging suggestive of a duodenal obstruction. We won't necessarily know for certain whether or not it's a duodenal atresia or another cause of duodenal obstruction. There can also be obstruction of the small bowel distal to the duodenum. So you can have jejunal or ileal atresias. And this is a common condition associated with polyhydramnia. And somewhere around 25 to 30% of patients with small bowel atresias will also have some extra intestinal anomalies, whether that be urogenital anomalies or skeletal anomalies. You can also have atresias of the colon, which will give you a more distal obstructive picture. And those may be structural or functional obstructions. So for example, a structural obstruction would be a colonic atresia or an anal rectal malformation. A functional obstruction is a meconium ileus or small left colon syndrome or Hirschsprung's disease. And these patients will present a bit different than those who have a very proximal obstruction. Patients who have a more proximal obstruction will have more bilious emesis shortly after feeds and often will have an upper abdominal fullness 
but may or may not have full abdominal distension, while an infant with a distal obstruction may have more pronounced abdominal distension that may progress over the first day or two of their life or even longer. Special considerations in the newborn period are also those infants who have conditions of prematurity. So for example, a premature infant born before 37 weeks of gestation is at a higher risk for necrotizing enterocolitis. So necrotizing enterocolitis is certainly a talk in and of itself, but that can give you bilious emesis and abdominal distension from either bowel ischemia or inflammation. So in the newborn period, 30 to 50% of infants with bilious emesis will eventually need surgical intervention. So it is important that a neonate that has bilious emesis is appropriately worked up and carefully examined for surgical conditions. Now, with that said, that means that 50 to 70% of neonates with bilious emesis will not require a surgical intervention, that they have something that is causing a dysfunction of the intestines, but is not a structural problem. So examples of that may include meconium ileus, in which patients who often have inspissated meconium in their intestines, those often will not require surgical intervention in order to decompress. Distal contrast enema is sensitive for diagnosis and is therapeutic and allowing the patient to evacuate stool. There are also children who have what's called small left colon syndrome. This is more common in infants born to diabetic mothers and evacuation of the stool is all that's necessary in order to treat those children. Hirschsprung's disease is one of those conditions that if you haven't taken care of pediatric patients in a while, it's not something you often see in the adult population. But Hirschsprung's disease is a condition in which the nerves to your colon don't go all the way down to your anus. And so you have nervous intervention of your intestines from your small bowel down to your cecum through your ascending, transverse, descending, and sigmoid colon. If that doesn't go all the way to the transition point of the anus, then you have Hirschsprung's disease. And so in Hirschsprung's disease, the bowel that does not have innervation is unable to relax. And so the abnormal bowel appears smaller than what we would expect. The normal bowel that can relax then becomes dilated proximal to the area of dysfunction. Those infants may present with bilious emesis, abdominal distension, and they can get quite ill either from compromise of the bowel proximally causing excessive distension or from enterocolitis, which is an infection in the bowel. Now, these patients are often evaluated by contrast enema that looks at the caliber of the rectum and the colon. And then if there's a suspicion for Hirschsprung's based on exam, plus or minus the findings of the contrast enema, then a rectal biopsy is performed. While awaiting the results of the rectal biopsy, these patients are often temporized with rectal irrigations of 10 milliliters per kilogram of saline via red rubber catheter every six hours or so in order to assist the child in evacuating the stool that they are having difficulty passing. Now, some patients with Hirschsprung's disease may have a very short segment, and so they may not become symptomatic until they're months or years of age. These children will often have had a report of delayed passage of meconium. And so if you have a child who has a constipation history and they did not pass meconium in the first 24 hours of life, one has to have Hirschsprung's disease in their differential. Other things that are important to consider in newborns with bilious emesis is, as I mentioned, anal rectal malformations. So the 
anal opening should be in the very center of the musculature. So if your anal opening is not in the center of your muscles, that is an anal rectal malformation. You can have a low anal rectal malformation or a high anal rectal malformation. A low anal rectal malformation would be having an anal opening outside of the center of those muscles and often as a fistula to the perineum. So for example, on boys, a low anal rectal malformation may present as a fistulous opening anterior to the anus or up through the scrotal raphe. On a girl, an anal rectal malformation is usually a perineal fistula between the vagina and the anus. There also may be, children may have a higher anal rectal malformation in which the fistula from the intestines is, for example, on the prosthetic urethra in a boy or on the bladder or at the neck at the prostate. So those are higher malformations. You can also have what's called a cloaca, so where you only have one opening. So for boys, you'd have both stool and urine coming through one opening. For girls, you would have only one opening as opposed to a urethra, vagina, and anus opening. Those are more complex malformations. Now, those may also present with biliosemesis, but hopefully you will have diagnosed that on your physical exam when you examine these infants. So we want to have those things in mind when we get called to see a child, for example, in the NICU or the newborn nursery. When you're called to see these patients, it's important that in assessing a neonate with biliosemesis that you do a thorough history and physical. Now, on the history, there are some things that are more important to focus on than you would an adult, for example. You want to focus on mom's maternal history. Does she have any history of diabetes? Does she have any history of drug use? For example, if the baby's mother is a diabetic, that infant's more likely to have small left colon syndrome. You want to know what kind of prenatal care that the mother had and what were the results of any prenatal ultrasounds or prenatal MRIs? Was there any polyhydramnios noted on the prenatal ultrasounds, which would suggest to us that perhaps uh, the child had a more severe intestinal obstruction? Depending on the age of the infant, you want to know whether or not that they've passed meconium. So some babies will stool shortly after birth. Some babies take longer to stool. So if you are called to see a three-day-old or a four-day-old in the NICU, you want to know whether or not they have passed meconium yet or not. And you want to know whether or not they have tolerated any feeds, and if so, how much and how frequently. So if they vomit shortly after any feed, that gives you an idea of a more proximal obstruction. If they've tolerated feeds for two weeks, for example, then the likelihood is that they either have a functional or a partial obstruction. And then on the physical, it's important to do a thorough physical from head to toe. When babies are first born, we don't know what parts might not be developed normally, which is very different than when you're assessing a child, for example, who's six years old, Clearly, they have intestinal maturity that has allowed them to get to the age of six. But a newborn may have an anal rectal malformation, may have hernias, may have skeletal dysplasias that can all affect intestinal function. And then when you're first assessing the infant, one has to make an initial diagnosis of whether or not this patient is critically ill and septic from an abdominal source and needs immediate intervention, or whether or not you have time to do a further evaluation. So in a patient who has an acute abdomen, who has abdominal sepsis, 
Time is of the essence. And so, for example, malrotation, if you're worried that they have malrotation with volvios causing ischemia of the intestine, that is a surgical emergency. The patient needs to be made NPO right away. An NG tube, if vomiting, you need to make sure you have appropriate access. You've given an IV fluid bolus of 20 mils per kg uh, saline. And then don't forget maintenance IV fluids. Babies need that dextrose. To a D5 or D10 solution. Send off some labs so that you have a baseline of where you're starting from. CBC with differential chemistry, type and cross. And if you're worried about abdominal sepsis, antibiotics, cultures if you can. But if you've decided that this baby has a surgical emergency in their abdomen, they need to go straight to the operating room. You do not need to have an upper GI to document malrotation with volvulus before you go to the operating room. The child is acutely ill from an abdominal pathology, you need to go. Now, if the child is not that critically ill, you're not worried about abdominal sepsis, you're not worried about an abdominal catastrophe, you have some time to perform a workup. And the workup will vary based on your history and physical exam. Because based on your history and physical exam, you will have rearranged your differential diagnosis that we spoke of earlier in your head based on your findings. For example, if their anus has a normal opening and the opening is surrounded by muscle, you you no longer have an anal rectal malformation on your differential. If on exam they do not have inguinal or umbilical hernias, then that is off of your differential, though they could still have an internal hernia or a diaphragmatic hernia, which you'll look for in further imaging. So based on your history and physical, you will usually start with a KUB, and that KUB in an infant or a newborn often includes the chest as well as the abdomen. And that is important for things such as diaphragmatic hernias. And so you're going to start with a KB and you'll usually get a decubitus or a cross-table lateral view as well. In a decubitus film, you want the infant right side up so that any free air or air fluid levels have a chance to become more clear. If the child, for whatever reason, can't be placed on their side, for example, somebody who's critically ill in the NICU, then a cross-table film can be obtained. You'll also send off some additional labs that I discussed earlier. You're going to send off a CBC with differential because you're going to look at their bands, their white count, their platelet levels. You want to see a chemistry. If they have bilious emesis, are they dehydrated? Most infants that haven't been receiving IV fluids will be dehydrated if they haven't been receiving resuscitation. Are there any other electrolyte abnormalities that may lead one to a diagnosis? You're also going to want to type and cross these patients if you're concerned that they're going to need abdominal surgery or interventions. If you have a concern for sepsis in any of these neonates, then oftentimes we will pan culture these patients and then start empiric antibiotics for a 48-hour rule-out. Now, realize that pan cultures for a neonate also include an LP in order to look for neonatal meningitis. So once we have a KUB with a decubitus view, then we can make a determination of what we need to do from there. For example, if we see free air on a KUB, we're going to go straight to the OR for, to perform a laparotomy. If we see intra-abdominal calcifications, then we're going to think more of a meconium peritonitis. And then we're going to have to assess the patient and see how they're doing clinically. If they do not improve, do not tolerate feeds, if they have persistent emesis, then patients with meconium peritonitis, so an intrauterine perforation, will often need a laparotomy. You may have a double bubble sign. So if you have a double bubble sign, then you're concerned about a duodenal obstruction, often being a duodenal atresia or a duodenal web, though maybe an annular pancreas. The most important thing with a double bubble sign on a KUB is that we must look for distal air. A malrotation with volvulus may give you a double bubble sign with 
air noted distal to the area of twist. If the patient has a classic double bubble with no distal air and there's no concern about malrotation, then that's fine. It's important to get then get an echo and then proceed with an elective repair. But if you have a double bubble with distal air, you may have a duodenal web, you may have an annular pancreas, but don't forget in the back of your head, you could have a volvulus. So one has to have a very high suspicion because the risk of being wrong is quite substantive. If we see a distal obstruction on the KEB, so for example, we have bowel loops that have filled throughout the abdomen, but haven't gotten all the way to the rectum, we have multiple dilated proximal loops, then we think of getting a contrast study. Things that can give us a more distal obstructive picture are things like an ileal atresia or Hirschsprung's disease or meconium plugs or meconium ileus. And a contrast enema can be diagnostic as well as therapeutic. So for example, in Hirschsprung's disease, we're looking for a transition zone. If we see a transition zone, then we become much more suspicious for Hirschsprung's disease and we'll head to a rectal biopsy. If we see meconium plugs or meconium, uh, multiple meconium plugs, then the contrast enema may have been diagnostic as well as therapeutic in evacuating those. If on the KUB we have normal or nonspecific gas pattern, then we need to think about in a newborn with bilious emesis, the upper GI. So again, malrotation, bilious emesis is malrotation until proven otherwise. If you diagnose malrotation in an infant with bilious emesis, you're going to go to the OR and perform a labs procedure. If there is no malrotation, then based on your differential, you may proceed to abdominal ultrasounds. If you're worried about, for example, a mass or a fullness to the abdomen, there's abdominal distension, but the KUB looks normal, then you may be looking for things like an ovarian cyst, which you can have in newborns. You may be looking for a lymphovascular malformation or a tumor. So infants can be born with tumors, for example, a neuroblastoma or a sacrococcygeal teratoma. Ultrasound can be very helpful in evaluating those conditions. CT is rarely done in newborns. They do not have the same fat distribution that we do as adults, and oftentimes the pictures are not that helpful. So it all breaks down based on what your finding is from your physical exam and what your suspicions are from the patient's history. All right, so that's bilious emesis in newborns, so less than four weeks of age. Now, when we're talking about bilious emesis in infants, we actually are looking at slightly different differential diagnosis. Now, they can still have malrotation, so you still have to have a very high index of suspicion. They can still have hernias. They can have umbilical hernias, inguinal hernias. They may even have diaphragmatic hernias. Not all babies are going to get a chest x-ray right after they're born. And so I've had multiple patients diagnosed when they're a few months to even a year of life with a diaphragmatic hernia. And that can present with bilious emesis because that has uh, effectively given the child a bowel obstruction. As children get older, there's always the risk of appendicitis, which is often very difficult to diagnose in infants. You can have bowel obstructions from traditional things such as hernias or adhesive bands. But also in children, remember the developmental conditions that can give you a bowel obstruction, such as an ophthalmesenteric duct remnant, where you still have a connection from your small bowel to your umbilicus around which you can torse. 
you can have a Meckles. So having a, a Meckles diagnosed as a newborn is uncommon. Now you can't have a patent amplomesenteric duct remnant where stool comes from the umbilicus. But a Meckles will often, Meckles diverticulum will often become symptomatic if it causes bleeding and or inflammation or obstruction. Complications from such will usually present in the first two years of life. Meckles, as you may remember, the rule of twos. So it affects 2% of the population as two types of tissue, uh, most commonly gastric and pancreatic tissue. And those with pancreatic or gastric tissue are more likely to become symptomatic. A patient with bilious emesis may have an inflamed Meckles or may have a Meckles that has caused a distal bowel obstruction. In children with suspected Meckles, oftentimes you can get a Meckles scan, so a nuclear medicine scan study. But the sensitivity is about 60 to 84%. And there are not insignificant number of false positives. And those false positives can be from, for example, a duplication cyst or some other cause of distal obstruction. The Meckel scan is not a definitive answer one way or another. So if one is suspicious of a Meckel's, oftentimes one has to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy or laparotomy in order to be certain. Things that are also more common in infants is a condition called intussusception. So where you have lymphoid hyperplasia, you have the distal ileum that intussuscepts into the cecum and the ascending colon. Now, this intussusception may be short segment. It may be a long segment. A long segment may present actually with rectal prolapse, where you actually have the small bowel intussuscepting all the way through the colon to the rectum. Oftentimes, more on the just on the right side of the abdomen. These children tend to be three months to three years of age, and that's the age in which we consider this a physiologically common phenomenon. Now, in the first year of life, the chances of uh, having a pathologic lead point as a, the cause of your intussusception is low and is estimated to be somewhere between 2 and 5%. As children get older, if they present with intussusception, the chances of having a malignant lead point or a pathologic lead point are more common. So one study has quoted that 44% of five-year-olds who have intussusception have a pathologic lead point, and that up to 60% of five to 14-year-olds that have intussusception have a, a pathologic lead point. And so if you have somebody that has intussusception outside of what we would consider predicted range of three months to three years, one has to start thinking of what sort of pathologic lead point uh, could be causing this uh, intussusception. The most common being a Meckel's diverticulum or an intestinal polyp can occasionally be a duplication cyst or an inversion appendectomy or at times lymphoid hyperplasia. Intussusception can often be treated with an air reduction enema about 80 to 85% of the time successfully. If the air reduction enema does not work the first time and the kid is clinically doing well, does not have peritonitis, is not hemodynamically unstable, then the air reduction enema can often be tried a second time with good results. And it's important during this time that patient with peritonitis, that with hemodynamic instability, with an acute abdomen is taken to the OR promptly to evaluate for any signs of ischemic bowel or perforation. After an air reduction enema, though, patients are at risk for recurrence. This can happen after an air reduction or after an operative intervention. It is important that parents are advised that this can occur and the signs and symptoms to be observant of. If a patient has a recurrence, they can still be reduced with an air enema. If a patient has multiple recurrences, especially in your older patients, then one must be concerned about a pathologic lead point. That can require further 
investigation, so abdominal ultrasound, upper GI, small bowel fall through, occasionally a CT scan. Depending on what you're concerned about, there could be further workup or a diagnostic laparoscopy to look for a pathologic lead point. There is currently in the literature no agreed upon number of times that you'd have to have a recurrence in order to justify a diagnostic laparoscopy. But recurrence is quite common in these patient populations and does not, in the ages between three months and three years, does not necessitate a diagnostic laparoscopy. Now, intussusception in neonates is actually quite rare. If you have a child less than four weeks of age who has intussusception, you must think of a pathologic lead point, and those patients do need further investigation and often operative exploration in order to identify why they have an intussusception. So in infants, infants and toddlers, the differential has gone from some of those small bowel atresias, for example, but you're moving from those atresias to other functional disorders, intussusception, Meckel's diverticulum. Now, while a, a child would not have been able to get to, for example, nine months of age with a duodenal atresia, unless it was repaired, a nine-month-old still could present, or an infant could still present with a duodenal web after the first month of life. So in a duodenal web, you don't have a full atresia. You have a wing sac deformity that has a narrowing of the duodenal lumen. And so you have some infants who are able to take in enough milk, and the milk is able to pass through this narrow opening. But once they start transitioning to solid foods, they get impaction in that small duodenal web, and then they start having bilious emesis, assuming that the web is distal to ampulla water. Now, often when you take a history from these parents and these children, you'll notice that these infants have been frequently labeled as spitters or poor feeders, or maybe they've been treated for reflux. So oftentimes they have some sort of gastrointestinal complaints in the previous months, but duodenal web may not present until they're older and start having more solid food. The same thing is, can be true for an annular pancreas. So an annular pancreas is where the pancreas forms all the way around the duodenum and basically creates a ring around the duodenum causing extrinsic compression. So this extrinsic compression often does not occlude the lumen entirely. It's just a partial obstruction. And so it's not until the child is eating more where it may become symptomatic. Those are other things that you need to think of as children get older. And also realize infants and toddlers in particular, once you once the child starts to be able to walk and is able to pick things up off the floor, one of the ways that children explore their environment is by putting things in their mouth. And so foreign body ingestion has to be on your list when you're thinking of bilious emesis in an infant, in a toddler. Now realize, even if they can't walk around on their own, perhaps they're six months of age, if they have siblings, if they're sat on the floor to play with their toys, they can come in contact with foreign bodies that they can consume. For example, if you have pennies on the floor, pennies can often lodge themselves in the upper esophagus of children. Now, that wouldn't usually present with bilious emesis, but other things that can give you bilious emesis, so for example, can get past your esophagus and past your stomach, are magnets. So earth magnets, for example, if infants swallow multiple earth magnets, either hopefully they will have stuck to themselves the magnets will have stuck to themselves and can pass all the way through. If they consume a magnet and then 
period of time goes by and they consume another one, those magnets don't stick to themselves when they're initially swallowed. They can stick to themselves through loops of bowel and cause either fissures, perforations, obstructions, inflammation. And so consumption of multiple magnets can be cause of bilious emesis and a need for surgical intervention in infants and toddlers. You can also have ingestion of other foreign bodies. So, for example, toothpicks or peach pits or toys can all be things that can cause distal obstructions in children. And so one must realize, particularly when children are become mobile, that a foreign body ingestion needs to be on your differential. Now, so the, we've discussed some of the things that are specific to infants and toddlers, but do remember, as we talked about, there are some things that can happen at any point in your life. For example, tumors, small bowel obstructions, appendicitis, annular pancreas, those are things that can happen throughout development. And so those are things that stay on the differential regardless of age. As we talk about older children, then we need to start thinking about conditions that affect ages 3 through 12. And so in that age range, we still have malrotation. So a sudden onset of bilious emesis, one must think and rule out malrotation because the consequences of missing it is bowel ischemia and potentially short bowel syndrome and or death. So malrotation has to be at the top of our list. Hernias. Now, hernias in children are from a patent process of vaginalis. Those patent processes may not be evident when children are infants and may only become evident during childhood as kids are up and moving around more. Inguinal hernias often present when children are school age or preschool age. And so if we have a sudden onset of bilious emesis, it's very important to do a thorough physical. And that includes looking at the groin and looking at the scrotum in boys for any evidence of hernias or incarcerated hernias. Appendicitis is very common. It affects 7% of the population. And the peak incidence for appendicitis is in school-aged children, and so 5 to 18. If you have a patient that presents with periumbilical pain, migrating to the right lower quadrant, nausea, vomiting, that vomiting can become bilious as their infectious process and as their ileus and or sepsis progresses. Appendicitis can also lead to a bowel obstruction just from the inflammation or the adhesions that it creates. So that can also give you a bilious emesis picture. And so appendicitis must be on your differential when you're thinking about abdominal distension, abdominal pain, or bilious emesis in children. Realizing that the younger children under the age of five often present with perforated appendicitis because of their inability to communicate with us as well as older children. At any age, including childhood, you can have the development of tumors or masses in the abdomen. Now, while things like hepatoblastoma are more common in infants and Wilms tumors are more common in children under five, you can have the development of, for example, ovarian masses in girls. Now, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that infants might be born or may be even prenatally diagnosed with ovarian cysts that can cause extrinsic compression and a bowel obstruction. Now, Girls during development can also develop ovarian cysts or ovarian masses. Ovarian cysts are more common after the onset of puberty, but ovarian masses such as teratomas or malignant ovarian masses can develop at any time. And so a fullness in the pelvis, history of constipation, difficulty urinating, or an obstructive, distal obstructive type picture, one must think about ovarian pathology in girls. Then once we start thinking about adolescence, our differential changes yet again, because adolescents, so 12 to 18 years of age, we start thinking of more of the adult pathology. 
So in the adult pathology, you have to remember things like acute cholecystitis or biliary colic, pancreatitis from either a biliary source or from drugs or alcohol, always on the differential, foreign body ingestions. Did they swallow a peach pit, a bottle cap top, uh, magnets, batteries? These are all things that you can see in the adolescent population. You also have to think of diseases that come with adult type behaviors. So if your patient is sexually active, do they have PID? That could present with bilious emesis or overall sepsis. So the differential diagnosis, as you move from a neonate to an adolescent changes, and that's going to change your workup and evaluation of these patients. With all of them, the evaluation starts with a thorough history and physical, and then an assessment of whether or not they're acutely ill and need immediate surgical intervention or whether or not further workup can be pursued. When we look at infants, for example, based on the KUB and based on their presentation, we may have certain suspicions on what's highest on our differential. So, for example, for antisusception, antisusception is diagnosed with an ultrasound to the usually starting in the right lower quadrant, looking for intussusception. If you have a mass in an infant or a toddler, then the workup for that is usually an abdominal ultrasound. If you have a distal obstruction, then you're often going to do a contrast enema. Again, with infants and toddlers, CT is rarely our go-to diagnostic imaging of choice. Again, the planes are much more difficult to distinguish. They have less fat than adolescents or adults. Now, there are times where we will still utilize a CT scan. So, for example, if we identify an abdominal mass and we're trying to delineate liver anatomy, so in the case of hepatoblastoma or in the case of a Wilms tumor, we'll often we always obtain a CT scan looking at the tumor itself as well as for lymphadenopathy involvement of the renal vein and IVC and extension of the thrombus. But in general, as an overall first diagnostic tool, CT is rarely used in newborns or infants. As we get into children and adolescents, our utilization of CT scans increases. The most frequent need for a CT scan and our evaluation of those patients is in the setting of obesity. If an adolescent or a child is quite obese, then it can be difficult from imaging perspective to get appropriate ultrasound pictures. And so we are finding that we are having to use CT more frequently in the morbidly obese population. Oftentimes, ultrasound can be very helpful in identifying ovarian pathology as well as gallbladder pathology and appendicitis. At times, if duplication cysts are on your differential as a possible cause of an obstruction in children, oftentimes a CT scan will be necessary in order to identify that more clearly and the extent of that duplication. A CT scan is still often used for identification of masses, just as it is in children under the age of five. I think the important thing when you're working at bilious emesis for children is to first look at the age and break it down based on pathologies that we would expect at different ages. Take a thorough and complete history and physical. Decide whether or not they need acute surgical intervention with rapid resuscitation or whether or not the patient is clinically stable, allowing a more thorough workup to be performed, and then assessing for other associated malformations. I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Until next time, dominate the day. 